You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies. Welcome back to Outer Brightness. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about an article by Michael Flournoy. It's called The Iron Rod and the Escalator of God, an Explanation of Sanctification for Latter-day Saints. This is part two in a series that he's done. The original or the, the initial uh, article in the series uh, is The Vicarious Atonement, which we previously uh, worked on in one of our episodes. And uh, Michael's here to, to go through the this article and we're going to discuss it. So Michael, take it away. All right. Sounds good. So yeah, in the previous article that I wrote, I did not uh, address sanctification at all. And I know that it's something that's real tempting for us to do um, as Christians. Um, but I think that a lot of times we have to really stick with one topic at a time when we're talking to Latter-day Saints. So this is uh, my second part, just talking about sanctification. So all the Bible references and everything are going to be King James Version, and this article is written to an LDS audience. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into it, starting with a, a, a passage here in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In a previous article, I described two types of Gospels, the Gospel of Amputation and the Gospel of Imputation. The Gospel of Amputation says we must remove the sin from our lives in order to become righteous. Since this includes sins of omission, we must also do all that God requires. In short, this is the Gospel of Obedience rewarded by grace. It also happens to be the Gospel Latter-day Saints adhere to. If you're LDS reading this, there's about a 50% chance you take umbrage at what I just said. However, I can be reasonably sure that I've spoken the truth based solely on the fact that the LDS Church is a religion. Let me ask you a few questions. Does an ordinance bring you into a covenantal relationship with God? Can major sins overturn that relationship? If another religion showed up that did baptisms and sealings for the dead, would they be discredited as a false church? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you're an adherent of amputation. I'm fully aware that some Latter-day Saints prefer grace to obedience. But even if you only have to keep one commandment, and it's the equivalent of clipping a fingernail, that still falls inside the bounds of amputation. Imputation is the opposite proposition. Instead of cutting off sin, we put on the righteousness of Christ. This righteousness drowns out our wickedness and immediately makes us worthy of the Father's presence. What's more, it occurs before we obey commandments or undergo a single ordinance. Since obedience doesn't lead to salvation, our sin can't undo salvation. It's not even in the equation. 
And if another religion pops up that does ordinances like baptism, but claims they're saved by faith first, they are considered a legitimate faith. This is why many Protestant denominations can coexist, but the LDS Church can't tolerate another organization appropriating their temples and performing their rites. If another religion does baptisms, those baptisms are considered illegitimate by the LDS Church. Again, this is because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ties the ordinances themselves to eternal life. Once a religion does this, they must claim exclusive rights to their rituals or else there would be no need for their faith. This is true not only of your religion, but of every belief system on earth. The exception is those who believe in imputed righteousness. Those who accept Christ and his vicarious work on the cross become his children and are immediately and forever worthy of eternal life. After we are declared perfect in Christ, we enter a sanctification process whereby we grow closer to God in love and trust. Our hearts are gradually changed, so we desire the things of God. In practice, this isn't all that different from how Latter-day Saints live out their lives. The difference is twofold. First, Grace acts as a safety net to catch us when we fall, thus keeping us inside the covenant. And second, we don't have to reach a certain stage of sanctification to gain eternal life, since we are worthy the moment we're born again through faith. All right. Matthew, Brianna, any thoughts on that first part of the article? Uh, Yeah, I had a few. Um, I thought it was really well written. I I think you kind of summarized your first article uh, pretty well. And I was trying to put my mind in the you know into the seat of a latter-day saint and and i and i like that part where you mentioned that if you read this you're probably not gonna like it <laughs> you're probably gonna have an issue with it <laughs> yeah. because yeah i was trying to put myself back in mind of a latter-day saint yeah i, I probably would have had that experience so I, I really enjoyed that i um so i wanted to ha- have a little clarification uh because when i was reading it i wanted to make sure that i understood correctly so when you're talking about how um uh let's see does an ordinance bring you into a covenantal relationship with god it's one of those questions and then um, let's see. Uh, I lost the line. Yeah, can major sins overturn that relate uh, that relationship? Uh, there's another part where you also talk about a covenantal relationship. I should have looked uh, looked that up. Um, let's see. Okay, maybe maybe I'll just uh, instead of reading that line, maybe just in general. So why are have like making a covenantal relationship with God? in an ordinance and the gospel of imputation, why are those kind of antithetical as you wrote in your article? Could you just summarize why they're, you can't have one and the other simultaneously? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I would say that the second that you put anything, uh, any work of man, any ordinance, anything that we do by our will, and you make that equal salvation, then you've got something that we can do to destroy our salvation as well. So say it was baptism, for example, I could come back later and say, I disavow my baptism, or, you know, I no longer believe that this baptism was performed correctly, or the LDS church is going to put uh, commandments and covenants attached to that baptism. So you could say, I've lost my priesthood, I've not been worthy of the priesthood, or I've not kept the uh, commitment that I said I was going to make at this baptism, therefore, my salvation is now broken. Um, Whereas with imputation, there's nothing, uh, you know, our obedience had nothing to do with that salvation. And so we can't break it because we didn't earn it in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, sorry, Brianna. Sorry. No, it's okay. What were you going to say? No, please go ahead. If you had something to say. (laughs) No, it it just made me think about like when we 
had to take our na- records, our names off the records of the church. And then like they said, all the blessings and everything that was done, it's null and void. So everything was tied to the church. And it's not like that when you're in Christ, um, because that he's, he's the final one that we go to. And it's not unbreakable because we didn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, kind of going along that line too, you know, I got sealed originally in the temple um, and I'm like, okay, there's nothing stronger than, than a ceiling. And then the church just completely obliterated it when I left. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess that wasn't as strong as I thought it was. But then with Christ, you really do have an unbreakable uh, salvation. And that's what this article is going to get into as we get into it a little bit deeper. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. Do we just read the next line? I mean, the next section? Yeah, I wanted to comment real quick on a couple of okay. things. Um, so I liked... I liked what you said about um, that, that a religion must claim exclusive rights to their rituals or else there would be no need for their faith once they tie eternal life to ordinances. Um, you know, I've, I've seen Latter-day Saints uh, kind of take umbrage, I guess, at maybe Roman Catholics not recognizing uh, Latter-day Saint baptisms as valid um, or, or other uh, Christian um groups not accepting Latter-day Saint baptism and, and, you know, is valid. And, you know, it's, they, they kind of get offended by that. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a two-edged sword, right? Because they don't accept other, they don't accept Christian baptism as valid for membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? If, if, if uh, the Lutheran minister that, that my companion and I taught for, for a while on our mission had converted uh, he would have had to be baptized uh, by one of us or someone else uh, who was a Latter-day Saint priesthood holder. So that kind of goes both ways. Um, the so I guess I guess what I'm saying there is it just doesn't make sense for Latter-day Saints to be offended by that given their stance that they take. Um, but what I really like about uh, what you said is at the, the very end of this section, um, we don't have to reach any certain stage of sanctification to gain eternal life uh, since we're worthy of the moment we're born again through faith. You know, I've tried to make this point uh, in various ways to Latter-day Saints that, you know, their theology includes full sanctification in uh, in exaltation within their uh, system of, of ladder climbing uh, to the highest levels of heaven. Um, and if you don't have that full sanctification, you don't get uh, eternal life in the celestial kingdom. Um, you know, they have DNC 36 or 76, sorry, that uh, talks about those who inherit the terrestrial kingdom. And among those who inherit, there's various groups that are described uh, within that section of, of Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 76. Um, and one of the groups of people that are said to inherit the terrestrial kingdom are those who were not valiant in the testimony of Christ. And if you look at what the what Latter-day Saint leaders, uh, prophets and apostles have taught about what that means to be valiant. And if you look at their their teaching guides, uh, their manuals about what it means to be valiant, it talks about obedience to the commandments. It's not just, um, you know, it talks about being valiant in the testimony of Jesus Christ, but it's not, this, this isn't a person who decides they no longer uh, believe in Christ or they, they don't have a strong enough uh, belief or trust. This is someone who isn't uh, obedient enough. And so, um, yeah, uh, the way that you've uh, kind of laid that out at the end of this section, uh, you know, that the difference is twofold, uh, that grace acts as a safety net to catch us when we fall, keeping us inside the covenant. Um, you know, that's like 
that reminds me of, uh, you know, no one shall snatch them out of the father's hand. No one shall, shall snatch them out of my hand. Right. Um, I and the father are, are one. So, you know, there's, there's no, there's no way, no how in which uh, a believer uh, is, is taken out of that relationship uh, with God in Christ. Um, and then there's that second part where we, you know, you don't have to be, and it's, you know, I don't want Latter Saints to misunderstand me. We're not saying that obedience uh, to Christ and striving for righteousness and striving for um, becoming more and more like Christ uh, is not important to the Christian life. Um, but it's a key difference to say that that is not that work of the Holy Spirit and sanctification is not. Um, it's not. Uh, have it doesn't have to be finished by us in order to uh, reach the highest level of heaven. And if not, we won't be with the Father, uh, as Latter Day Saint teachings about heaven uh, hold. So, any thoughts from others on that before we go on? I did have one thought that you kind of brought to my head, Paul, and that was you were talking about uh, ordinances just now. And uh, it's funny because as a Latter-day Saint, I would look at Protestants and I'd say they are so divided. You know, there's no unity among them. And yet, like I, I kind of mentioned here in this article, but I did, didn't think about it that much. But yeah, if I go to another church, another Protestant denomination, they're going to accept my baptism. And that is really saying a lot. Uh, the LDS church, you know, if you go to another branch of, of Mormonism, that's not going to be the case. Um, but, but within Protestant Christianity, it is. So that's, uh, that's pretty telling. And by, by branch of Mormonism, uh, you don't mean one of the smaller wards. You mean, yeah. you mean if you go to like the community of Christ or to the Bickertonites or, or some other, yep. uh, branch of the restoration. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. All right. Let's go on to the next section, the iron rod. All right. To demonstrate these two Gospels, let's look at a well-known book of Mormon analogy, The Iron Rod. Lehi has a dream in 1 Nephi chapter 8, where he sees a rod of iron leading to the tree of life. Throngs of people hold tight to this rod as they make their way to the tree. This is a good representation of the Gospel of Amputation. The tree symbolizing the love of God lies at the end of the path, and effort is required to get there. The journey is treacherous and many fall into forbidden paths and are lost. Others wander into filthy waters and drown therein. Even after reaching the tree and partaking of the fruit, some are embarrassed by the mocking of onlookers in a great and spacious building. They discard the fruit and enter the building, which later collapses. The point is, there is no assurance in the gospel of amputation. There is no point in the journey where anyone can rest in the knowledge that their salvation is secure. Even after reaching the end of the journey and partaking of the love of God, they can be coaxed away. But what if I told you there's another route to the tree? After wandering around in darkness for hours, Lehi prays for mercy and the darkness subsides. He finds himself in a spacious field near the tree. He simply walks up and eats the fruit. And he's not the only one to forego the rod. Nephi, Sam, and Sariah are also, uh, also approach the tree without using it. Of the four of them, none are lost to forbidden paths or drowned in the filthy waters, making this path far superior to the iron rod. Imputation teaches that Christ already did the hard work of obeying God's word. He made it past the iron rod, planted the tree of life, and built an escalator to heaven. This is the path of mercy. Justice is satisfied that Christ walked the path, and now Jesus can take us straight to the tree. 
The tree isn't the end of the path, it's the beginning. Once we board the escalator through faith, we can uh, rest assured that our salvation is secure in the blood of the Lamb. There's no way to get off and wander into the swamps of damnation. Our future in heaven with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is an absolute certainty. Matthew, any thoughts on this section? Yeah, if I were an LDS right now, I'd be buzzing. You know, my, my brain would be buzzing with activity. I'd be like, so what? You just, you just, you just, you know, you just sign your card and you're good. Guy, you got heaven. I mean, come on, man. That's, that's not the, that's not the, the gospel of Christ taught. You know, he told you, you got to obey his commandments. You got to, you know, pick up your cross and follow him. So I could just, I could see myself as a lot of this getting upset, but but when you understand the good news of the gospel, that is the good news. The good news is not that you have to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to get to Christ's mercy. It's that it's always there and always available. And that's all you need for eternal life. And hardships will come, but but those hardships are not what secure the gospel. So I think you really use that wording really well to, to explain um, the alternate path to the tree and the escalator. The escalator um, is what kind of transports you. It's like you, once you're on the escalator, it, it, it guides you towards eternal life. So I really enjoyed that. Now, what if, um, what if the Latter-day Saint were to object to that and say, well, can't you jump off the escalator? You know, in a mall, you could jump off if you wanted. <laughs> so how would you respond to that? Why would you want to? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, and you have to kind of get through the whole article for this to even make sense, what I'm about to say. So, you know, maybe think about this after you hear the whole episode uh, if you're if to all fireflies out there, but when you get on the escalator, you've already got the intention of either riding it to heaven or of jumping off to your death. And so basically your intention is your intention when you get on that escalator is what's going to determine whether you go to heaven or not. So, so yeah, I, I, I mean, the whole point though is, and I'm going to get into it in the article is, yeah, like Brianna said, why would you want to get off that escalator? If you got on the escalator, you're not going to jump off. And my guess is that any Latter-day Saint who says this has not jumped off of an escalator themselves. So that's one of those things, pictures or it never happened. Yeah, Matthew, I mean, come on, why would you want to? I mean, you've, you've seen that early viral. <laughs> you've seen that early viral video where that kid's riding up the escalator and he decides to jump off halfway and he tries to hang onto the handrail. It doesn't end well. I haven't seen that one. I've seen the one where, well, several, where they slide down the escalator. Yeah, those don't they, end well either. And they never end well, yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, but this Honestly, this whole go ahead, Michael. I was gonna say I think a better argument that the LDS can make is like, well, can't like your shoelaces get caught in an escalator and then like couldn't that kill you? That'd probably be a, a better argument. Because I don't know what I would say about that. Well, the idea is you're not exerting your effort to get to heaven. Christ is bringing you there. Right. Yeah. Well, what would you, Michael, what would you say to the Latter-day Saint who makes the argument, the, the heavenly kid argument about the escalator? Have you seen that? Have you all seen that uh, movie? It's one of my favorite 80s movies, The Heavenly Kid. I wasn't around yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what argument you're talking about. No, it's just, it's this great 80s movie that takes place in the 50s. Uh, well, it, it partially takes place in the 50s. There's this guy uh, and he's, you know, he's really cool. He's a, um, he's got like a muscle car and, you know, like the girlfriend and there's this, uh, they go out to this um, uh, abandoned gravel pit and they they do these um kind of like chicken races in their cars towards the cliff over the over the gravel pit and whoever uh stops first um 
you know, loses. And so this guy, Bobby, he's the main character. He's doing this this race and his girlfriend's like, don't do it. And his he's got this uh, chain bracelet that gets stuck on his uh, I don't know if it gets stuck on his gear shifter or on his steering wheel or something, but he can't get out of the car uh, and he can't stop. So he goes over the cliff and dies. And then um, he can't get to heaven because he's he's been kind of like this uh, this uh, hard living greaser. Right. <laughs> so he's not allowed to enter heaven until his guardian angel helps him uh, do enough good uh, as a guardian angel to his son uh, in order to get into heaven. And the end of the movie, uh, he's finally allowed to get into heaven. He's riding up this super long escalator like he's coming out of the deepest uh, uh underground uh oh geez wow uh metro not metro uh what do they call them subway Subway, yes thank you sorry i I, I always get stuck with that one with the the hungarian term i I always want to call it metro but um yeah he's riding up this super long escalator going to heaven so that's that's what this always reminds me of but it's not really a good analogy because in the movie he's got to prove himself good enough to get on the escalator so what what would you say the mormon who makes the heavenly kid argument I mean, I don't know that it's, I, I don't even understand what the argument's trying to really make. Like, <laughs> I don't. Well, you can't see. get on the escalator until you're good enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to get, I'm going to get more into that here in the article. But I mean, the argument that I make is that Christ already walked the path and built the escalator for us, that he has the right to put us directly on top of that escalator because he's already obeyed God's, God's uh, commandments perfectly. So. Um, and then going back to my argument that I made up about like our clothes getting caught in the escalator and then it, it's spilling our demise. Well, God makes better escalators than people do. So that doesn't happen. But really the so, whole, the whole so, escalator is just kind of a, an analogy just to kind of get into the article. I mean, I don't know that God actually uses an escalator to. to so what you're saying though, is there's no, there are no angels standing as sentinels waiting for you to give a password so you can. <laughs> get on the escalator nope okay anybody can get on the escalator all right now what now what if an engineer latter-day saint reads this oh. and he says now what if the angel that's maintaining the escalator uses an oil with the incorrect viscosity and the belt it spins it doesn't have any traction so how do you deal with that yeah. no i'm just kidding. honestly i'd just be glad that they're like playing along that there's an escalator like <laughs> I, i'd consider that a really good sign to be honest <laughs> yeah uh, it is it, it, we're, we're poking fun but a lot of times when you do use an analogy they'll pick apart you know people will pick apart this tiny little thing that's like well that's not the point you know yeah. every analogy falls apart so yeah. yes and i am glad that you're not lds anymore matthew because i know you'd be uh trying to do that <laughs> actually <laughs> <laughs> all right let's go into matthew's section all right i'm the expert on this topic uh sealed for eternity <laughs> When faced with salvation by faith alone, Latter-day Saints often ask what role obedience plays. Allow me to answer that with an analogy about marriage. When we get married to someone, all we have to do is say the words, I do. We don't enter this relationship to earn the other person's love. Rather, we marry as a result of that love. Contrary to what fairy tales teach, the story doesn't end at marriage. It's the beginning of the adventure. It's a roller coaster of highs and lows. It's an opportunity to grow closer to your spouse and to learn to trust each other. But even during the tumultuous drops, the marriage covenant remains intact. Nothing changes within us when we enter this relationship. There's no transformation of character shouting to the world that we're married. A couple may wear rings as an outward sign of their devotion, but that isn't what makes them married. 
what makes them married is simply a legal declaration that they are. Now let's pretend that uh, the bride was $100,000 in debt on the day of the wedding, but she married a billionaire. By virtue of her husband's name, she was now a billionaire too, despite all that debt. That's how imputation works. We take Christ's name upon us and acquire his righteousness. The difference is his righteousness is infinite. So there's nothing we can do to make up the difference or slide back into spiritual debt. In my analogy, the husband may teach his bride to be wiser with money, but that comes after the marriage. In the same way, God's word is a standard to teach us morality, but our covenantal relationship with him predates our obedience. Consider this question by the Apostle Paul. When was Abraham counted righteous? Was it before or after he was circumcised? He answers that it was before circumcision and explains why in Romans chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, which reads in the King James Version, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Close quote. Brianna, any thoughts on this section? I'm trying to think. Has he been teaching you to be wise with your money? What, my husband? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> No, I mean, yes, but um, <laughs> I had something and then I, I lose it after like. I want to ask Matthew about his expertise <laughs> in marriage. Um, so I did try to go back here um, because, you know, Matthew was saying in that last section with his LDS hat on that, you know, he was buzzing with all these arguments. And so I try to go back and address them here that it is important, um, specifically uh, that I mean, with that whole thing that you just mentioned, like the husband may teach his bride to be wiser with money, but that comes after the marriage in the same way that God is still going to be uh, changing us. And, 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 you know, the scripture is there to instruct us, but, but the goal is for us to grow, but that comes after uh, the covenantal relationship has already been put in place, you know? And, and one thing that I kind of think of too, is like the way I think of the LDS covenant is it's really almost like saying like oh my gosh i need to uh go take out the garbage and wash the dishes or else my marriage isn't valid anymore or it you know that's like almost how you make it be valid and it's like no like you don't do chores to uh to to make your relationship a marriage or to keep it you know a marriage you do chores because you already have this love you have a marriage and that's why you're doing it and so it's the same thing when it comes to uh obeying god like i'm not obeying god to earn my salvation or to become god's child i already am and so i'm doing that because i'm god's child yeah i thought that was yeah. pretty um, when, when I was when we were reading a section, uh, it reminded me of when I when I was preparing for to serve my mission. Like after I graduated high school and I started college, and then I kind of went back to activity. One book I really liked that somebody gave me was I think his name is Stephen Robinson, uh, Believing Christ, and he uses like the the bicycle example where you know the the son wants the bicycle. He can't afford it. So he gives his dad a dollar fifty or whatever he has in his pocket. And he feels so despondent because he he's like, Well, it's not enough to buy the bike. And the dad says, Well, just give me what you have and then I'll pay the rest. And so he kind of uses these analogies like that to describe the atonement. And so I think uh so you're 
your um so your example of, of the bride that's a hundred thousand dollars in debt on the day of the wedding and then when she's married that debt uh, wipes it away um that sounds very similar but uh how would you contrast that with like the lds view and i think you've already kind of mentioned it but just to just for those who might have this example in mind how would you contrast your example of the bride in debt with uh, Stephen Robinson's example of the child who's trying to buy the bicycle. Like how yeah, are they the same or different or. I think there's a very big contrast here because in the story with the bicycle, the father asks the kid to just kind of give him what he can. And it's a dollar 50, you know what, but that's a positive contribution. It's not much, but it is a positive contribution. What I'm talking about with the gospel of imputation is that this bride is a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Not only does she have nothing to offer, she is actually bringing debt into the relationship and he's taking her anyway. And so that's, that's the difference between these two gospels right there. Right. And it's like you were saying before I asked the question, it's not like you have to put your forth, your best effort first, and then he'll put forth his best effort. It's like, you just plead for mercy and then Christ gives you everything that you need, you can desire. So it's not like a, a give and take. It's, I mean, if you think about it, we're kind of selfish as these sinful humans, we've done everything to demerit ourselves of God's love and grace and he still loves us anyway. And all we have to do is ask him for grace and he gives it to us. It's like, you know, you know God is the one that's completely giving. He's not really receiving anything this transaction. He's com- he's the one who's, you know, we're, he's uh, the benefactor and we're the beneficiaries. Is that right? That Paul, is, he's, Paul's right. the money guy, so he can he can correct me on that if I use the wrong terms. But what are you talking about? You're doing like you're doing like, ins- you know, insurance and all that stuff, you know? OK, gotcha. <laughs> Um, so to kind of further the analogy though, uh, you've got a bride, Michael, as you were saying, who's deep in debt and marries a billionaire. So isn't the gospel of amputation sort of like the billionaire, uh, asking the bride to sign a prenup? If this doesn't work out, you don't get anything of what I've got. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, that seems to fit really well because it's either you get all the blessings through complete faithfulness or you don't get any of them. Um, I guess, you know, there's still the, there's always the terrestrial kingdom where you get something, you know, but if you, you know, if you're like an ex-Mormon like us, you're not getting anything if, if uh, you come out of the relationship completely. Yeah. And I was thinking going along with that, uh, if you think about it, in the LDS church, they believe that whether in this life or in the next, you have to get to the point where you fully repented and completely stop sinning. So not only is the bride in your example, accruing debt, she's continuing to accrue debt you know, every day, because every day we still sin. But in the LDS church, it's like he 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 would only marry there on the promise that eventually she will stop making debt completely, that she will, you know, stop uh, adding to her debt. Yeah, I think it goes further than that, because I think in the Mormon analogy, she needs to pay him back that $100,000 somehow um, for her to stay in that marriage with him. Yeah, and this, this section... Um, and, and thinking about sanctification and what role it plays in our in our ultimate you know glorification with Christ, um, you know Mormons will often cite Philippians two twelve, which says, uh, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Now, if, you know, if you want to stop right there and, and think about this passage in relation to uh, kind of the overall view that that Latter-day Saint theology takes, which is that the, the this mortal life is a proving ground. 
right? Abraham three, we will prove them here with to see if they will do uh, all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Um, and and the three of us, the four of us, all probably remember being taught as Latter Day Saints that that this earth life is a test. Keep me honest here. That that's what we were taught, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, okay, because I get a lot of Latter-day Saints tell me that that's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, we were taught that. It's it, it's a test to see whether we'll be completely obedient. And, you know, they'll often uh, kind of throw this Philippians 2.12 passage at us uh, when we say that we're saved by by grace through faith, uh, not of our works, right? If we if we cite uh, Galatians 2, 8, and 9, they're going to throw Philippians 2.12 at us. And I always remind them, you know, that it, it makes sense to uh, go on and read uh, verse 13 that comes after that. Um, so if you read the whole thing, uh, 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, and that completely changes this whole idea of uh, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I like to ask them, you know, what what causes the fear and trembling? Is it is it a fear that you might not do enough, that you might end up in the terrestrial kingdom because you weren't valiant enough in the, in the testimony of, of Christ? Or is it that realization that God is the one working in you. Um, God, the Holy Spirit is working in you to bring about that full sanctification. After you have believed, after you're justified, after you're in Christ, that work is being done by God, both to will and to work, um, which is, I think, you know, really interesting that both the willing to do something and the working of it uh, is God's work. Um and salvation and sanctification is is God's work from beginning to end. Um, the other passage that I like to talk about um, is Ephesians 2.10, uh, which says this, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? The, the scriptures tell us that when we, are in, when we enter into Christ, we are a new creation, right? So we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? It's not we do good works, so that we can be in Christ Jesus. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them, right? So um, yeah, just, just some, some thoughts on sanctification and what role it plays in our, in our ultimate uh, salvation. Because uh, Mormon theology really puts uh, full sanctification uh, as the, uh, it's not just that it's the goal, it's the goal of every Christian. Full sanctification, cooperation with the Holy Spirit is the goal of every Christian. But um Mormonism puts full sanctification as the requirement to live with God. Uh, and, and I even had one recently uh, challenge me on that and say, well, uh, don't you also believe that you have to be fully sanctified before you can enter God's presence? No unclean thing can enter God's presence. That, well, yes, but it's not as a result of my work. It's a, as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, and God will bring that work to completion. Thoughts on that? I really like what you were bringing up, Paul, on that. And it, and it reminded me of, um, oh, crap, now I just forgot. My mind keeps slipping things, but um, with the with God working that out in us, um, it, it, it made me think about like how he brings us to repentance. And like the process of repentance is where, where God convicts us by the Holy Spirit and we feel remorseful for our sin. And that's how that's how we know we're being sanctified, because we actually um, are becoming more and more aware of our sinful natures and the things that are displeasing to God. And 
we want to like we we grieve over that and we want to change our ways we we confess our sins and we acknowledge that we're not perfect but we know that God is still there and he won't abandon us like in, in LDS theology if we're sinning the holy spirit will leave us that's when we need him most so yeah i I'm, yeah that's good thank you for thank you for those thoughts Brianna Matthew any anything more on this section I just want to say thank you both for your comments. It's great. Um, I, I enjoyed too the Romans five passage there. Romans chapters four and five are probably my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, just because the gospel is just so clearly laid out there. Um, and I never, I don't know about you guys, but I was, I never had even heard the concept of uh, either imputation or double imputation. And I think it was when I first started hearing it from uh, R.C. Sproul, where he was talking about the double imputation, and he had the drawn on the chalkboard, you know, where he had the cross. And then he had, um, you know, us. And then it said that it was through faith, you know, by God's gift of grace through faith, our sins are transferred to Jesus. You know, so there's an arrow pointing our sins from us to him and his righteousness from the cross to us. And so you have to have both. You can't have just one or the other, you know, to be, you know, to be able to be enter God's presence and to be declared righteous and need both. And so I really loved um, just reiterating that gospel message because that's the good news. The good news is not Jesus enables us to, you know, to keep his commandments and work on this path towards eternal life, which is kind of what we were talking about LDS. It's right now we're declared righteous through faith. Like at the moment we convert, we're righteous, which is something that I desperately wanted to hear as Latter-day Saint. But I, you know, I just, I just felt like it was this goal that I could never reach, but I just, the only, only trust of God is just keep pushing forward and hope I get it eventually. But I, I felt like I would never attain it. So um, just hearing that again, I mean, we, we need to hear the gospel even as believers. We'd hear it over and over again because Sometimes we, we just need to or remind ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's just a, this is just so, flies in the face of uh, the Latter-day Saint viewpoint where, you know, just that whole question, when was Abraham deemed righteous before he was obedient or after? And it's before he, before he took that circumcision. And so if it's the case with that, then it must also be the case with everything else too, uh, you know, baptism or or any ordinances that we take, um, we are righteous um, before we undergo any of those things because Christ just gives it to us. And, you know, Latter-day Saints, you know, they might not be familiar with the word imputation. I never heard of it the whole time I was LDS um, until the very end. Um, but they do actually believe in imputation. They believe that Christ takes their sin. They just don't believe in double imputation. They don't believe that his righteousness can be given to them. That's that's the big difference right there. Yeah. Yeah. Staying kind of staying on Abraham and because it's uh, kind of another challenge that Latter-day Saints will will throw when you when you go to Romans five and, and what it says about uh, Abraham there uh, and Abraham being declared uh, sorry, that Abraham's uh, trust of God was credited to him as righteousness. Um, they'll often go to James 2 and and verses 21 and 22, which say, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, throw this question out to any of you. How would you respond to a Latter-day Saint that brings up that that argument there? I mean, the, the very scripture that you just read uh, obliterates that viewpoint because it says 
Thus was the scripture fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So it equates belief with imputation. That's in the exact same sentence. And then you go back to where that that scripture actually is. And this is way before Abraham sacrificed Isaac. So he was already deemed righteous before he ever went up and sacrificed Isaac. And so this is not an instance of work perfecting Abraham's faith. Abraham had that perfect faith or else he would not have taken his son on top of that mountain to sacrifice him. Um, He was doing this because He wasn't doing this to become righteous. He was obeying God because he was righteous. That's my argument. What do you think? I think you put it really well. Yeah. I've heard estimates um, that between when God declared him righteous before his circumcision and and God made a covenant with Abraham and when he offered Isaac on the altar is about 20 something years difference. So in Romans, it says he was already declared righteous 20 years prior to him offering Isaac on the altar. And so, yeah, did he lose his, you know, are, are, would they argue that he somehow lost his justification and he needed to get it back through his works? You know, I don't think that makes sense because, you know, Paul says in Romans 5.1, having been uh, justified by faith, we now have peace with God. It's not something you lose and then you have to get back. So, yeah, it's it's less a demonstration of him becoming justified by God, but his demonstration of his faith is outwardly, it, it, it demonstrates his, his inward faith. And, and I do think there is a sense when we can understand faith or our works to be something that perfects our faith in the sense of it enriches it, it grows it, it, you know, makes it deeper and stronger as we go through the trials of life and as we follow Christ. So there is a sense in which faith and works are connected in that sense, but uh, the works themselves do not justify us uh, absolutely before God. Yeah, yeah and I've actually had LDS kind of point to somebody else besides Abraham too. Even recently, one of them pointed out uh, Noah to me and says, if you read Genesis, it says Noah found favor with God. And why is that? It's because he was a perfect man in all his generations is what they said to me. And so I responded, well, why do you think he was uh, upright before God? Was he just a really good atheist or did he have faith first? I didn't get a response uh, to that question, but no matter what, Faith is always going to come first, and it's going to be the cause for uh, obedience. Obedience does not cause faith. It's the other way around. Yeah, and, you know, the big, kind of the big um, point of departure here between uh, what evangelical Christians are saying and what Latter-day Saints are saying kind of comes down to um, the, the view of what faith is. Uh, if you read the the lectures on faith, uh, whether they were written by Joseph Smith himself or not, uh, they were um, taught to uh, Latter-day Saints at the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, and they were part of the Latter-day Saint canon up until 1909, I think. I can't remember the exact year uh, they were removed, maybe 1919. I can't remember the exact year, but um, there was a point in the early 20th century when they were removed but there's a there's a statement in there about faith that 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 basically is making the case that faith is an is an action word. Faith faith involves works, um, and so you know that's kind of the point of departure here. Uh, if you look at James two, um, you know they they like to make the make the case from verse twenty four that you know this is the only place where you say where you see the word justified and uh, or faith and sorry the words faith and alone. Uh, in the same 
place in in the Bible because you know the the one of the famous uh, Reformation uh, call is uh, sola fide, right? By by faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. Um, and so they're you know they'll they'll try to argue that 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 Reformation principle uh, by faith alone isn't scriptural because James says that you know, here a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, you know, and, and the question is, what what kind of faith is is James talking about? Um, is he talking about that what's necessary is belief and good works uh, done by the person? Uh, I think that's what Latter-day Saints w- would argue. Uh, Matthew, Michael, Brianna, would you agree with that? I, I think so. Yeah. So is he is he saying faith and works justify a person or is he saying that there's a particular uh, kind of faith that leads to good works um, and I I would have to argue it's the latter uh, for the reasons that that you all have kind of called out as we've had this discussion about James 2 um, and that is because Abraham was was credited as righteous righteousness was credited to him uh, when he trusted God so there's a particular kind of faith a, a trust in, in the promises of God, right? Because the promise of God that Abraham was trusting in was what? That he would have an heir. Yeah, That's, that he would yeah. have an heir, right? And his wife was old. And so the promise uh, that he would have an heir wasn't immediately f- uh, apparent to him. Uh, and you, if, as you read the story of Abraham, he goes through several, uh, they go, he and his wife go through several methods of trying to kind of force the issue, right? Um but he trusted God, right? And and it's when he trusted in the promise of God that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, as Paul calls out and James calls out, right? So there's a particular kind of faith that leads to good works. And that brings you back to uh, Philippians 2 and Ephesians 2 uh, that we we kind of spoke about in the last section. So anyway, just kind of my final thoughts on this section of your article, Michael. Yeah, and one more thing too is, you know, even if we do say... You know, even if we pretend that everything in James chapter two is talking about, you know, the LDS view, it lists several actions that people go through that, you know, they are, you know, I guess their works do something to perfect them at that point. Uh, Rahab lets the men out another way. Abraham goes to sacrifice his son. You know, there's a couple of different examples there. Not one of them has anything to do with LDS ordinances which ends up being a double-edged sword because it really implies that you do not need LDS ordinances to be righteous at all. You just do some random, you know, work to please God and that's good enough. So I just, I just don't think that that really works to view it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. 
we have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right, so this brings us to the final section of the article. Can salvation be lost? Most Latter-day Saints balk at the idea that grace is sufficient for eternal life. They consider sola gratia to be cheap grace and a license to sin. Let's shift over to a parent-child analogy. Some Latter-day Saints have told me they give rules to their children to teach them discipline and argue that our loving Heavenly Father employs the same methods. I agree, but with a caveat. Disobedience doesn't, un- disobedience doesn't undo the covenantal relationship. Can you imagine kicking your kid out of the house because he didn't clean his room? Or disowning him because he told a lie? Or is your love unconditional? Do you value your relationship with your children even when they do things you're ashamed of? If your child grew up and said they hated you and walked away, wouldn't they still be a son or daughter in your eyes? I believe this resembles the relationship we have with God. When we sin, God doesn't abandon us until we get our act together. If anything, he's closer to us in these times, giving us the comfort and direction we desperately need. As Paul so eloquently preaches in Romans 5.20, quote, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, end quote. This is evidence in the story. This is evidenced in the story of David and Bathsheba. Not only does King David commit adultery, but he puts the woman's husband on the front lines of battle to die. When Nathan the prophet confronts him, David confesses his sin and Nathan replies, quote, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. End quote. 2 Samuel 12, 13. How great is God's grace and how boundless is his mercy that he could forgive so great a sin. Surely there, are, surely there is nothing cheap about a grace like this. So to my Latter-day Saint reader, I ask, does the same God who forgave David of murder and adultery really take away salvation when we do less evil than that? Does the Jesus who died for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, abandon us because we're still sinners? Jesus prayed for the very people who condemned him to death, saying, quote, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, end quote, Luke 23.34, KJV. And I posit that it's against Christ's nature to turn, ab- turn around and disown his own children. But what about us? Can't we turn our backs on him? We can leave him, but he will move heaven and earth to bring us back to the fold. Ultimately, the question that needs to be asked is this, do we adopt God or does he adopt us? If God adopts us, what right do we have to nullify that? We can complain or act out in disobedience, but nothing we can do can ever sever our relationship with him. Even if we walk down an escalator, the stairs still work to bring us up. Another disagreement Latter-day Saints have with evangelicals is our tendency to say those who leave Christianity never believed in Jesus at all. But let me explain, using marriage as an example again. I was married to my first wife for nine years. At the end of it, she informed me that she wanted to date other men. When I protested, she filed for divorce. I spent months in a state of agony, reliving our most cherished memories, and yet they meant nothing to her. She saw my sorrow and wasn't phased. Did she fall out of love? No. The simpler explanation is that she never loved me at all. What she felt for me was actually infatuation. Many people have an infatuation with the idea of God, but as soon as being a disciple becomes inconvenient, they they abandon their Christian ideals. My friends, do not be deceived. Someone like this could never have loved God. 1 Corinthians 13.7 tells us that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If it doesn't endure, then it isn't love. As a Latter-day Saint, you may say, people get divorced all the time. Doesn't that prove someone can walk away from God's covenantal relationship? Can we, can't we reject his love? The question of divorce was posed to Jesus by the Pharisees, and he replied, quote, For the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation... 
God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Mark 10, 5-9, KJV. In other words, divorce is not a God thing, but a man thing. And according to the New Testament, Christ is our bridegroom, Matthew 25, 5. If we have been sealed to him, how can we be separated? I would also note that love can't be rejected. If someone loves us, that love is present, whether we feel it or not. It's there whether we want it or not. However, the rod of iron gospel teaches the opposite. Since the tree in Lehi's vision represents the love of God, we can infer that God's love only covers those who make it to the shade of the tree. To make it to the shade, let me start that over. Since the tree in Lehi's vision represents the love of God, we can infer that God's love only covers those who make it to the shade the tree provides. He doesn't love those who walk away from him. He doesn't love the lost or even the ones obeying his word because they haven't endured to the end. This love must be earned and therefore it is not love at all. This this resembles an abusive narcissistic relationship more than it resembles real charity. Like the rod of iron itself, this love will inevitably rust. Contrast that with what Paul writes in Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're tired of fighting a losing battle to reach perfection, if broken covenants condemn you, if your sins have traded your peace with fear, and if a love that runs at the sight of your imperfections isn't what you're used to, then I invite you to flee from it. Sorry. If a love that runs at the side of your imperfections is what you're used to, then I invite you to flee from it. You will never be enough in a gospel like that, and you will never finish proving your worthiness. Instead, I invite you to embrace the unconditional, unending, fully accepting, ever merciful, totally sufficient, and all-encompassing love of Christ. Matthew, Brianna, thoughts? That's a lot, a lot of good stuff. So. What did you guys think about me using... Uh, the words, if we're sealed to Christ, how can we be separated to him? I kind of wanted to use some Mormonese in there. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, I was thinking a lot about temple ceilings, actually kind of more in this section than the previous one for uh, reasons, um, because you had mentioned um, kind of continued, like you talked about your marriage experience and, and how you felt like it, was, it wasn't a real, you know, like it wasn't true love, but infatuation. And that was fascinating because, yeah, like you said, there are, if it was true love, then then it doesn't do work. And so when Christ seals us to him, like you were explaining, that's that's Christ's love never runs out or it's never conditional upon what we give back to him. It's there and it's he always gives it to us and, and he chastises us, but that's because, you know, as children of God, he chastises us ultimately to bring us back to him, not just simply out of some kind of desire to hurt or to punish. So yeah, I really, I really liked all that. Um, I think I think it will resonate a lot with Latter-day Saints, especially those who feel tired of, you know, the covenant keeping and, and uh, you know, the, the hamster wheel of being a Latter-day Saint. So I think you did a great job. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the arguments that I did have a, a Latter-day Saint bring up to me, and I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts on this, is he said that he believes people can absolutely fall out of love, basically making the argument that love doesn't have to endure all things. And I guess my thoughts on it, I'll just go ahead and throw it out there, is that that's not love. I think people 
misinterpret or misidentify love a lot with maybe infatuation or or the feelings that that a couple have when their relationship is new. And I think people can fall out of those feelings for sure. But actual love, I don't believe that people, I don't believe that that ever goes away. Um, You know, because I don't think love has to do with those feelings. You know, I think it's more of, you know, even if me and my wife were fighting for some reason, like I would still go to work to support her and the family and, and hope for a better future. Um, you know, it's, it's like, it's a choice that we make to love somebody. And, you know, I've kind of encountered this uh, really interesting phenomenon like lately, because I go to work, I go to people's houses all the time and, and meet people. And I've come across men who are divorced, you know, and they still uh, like, they tell me they still text their ex-wife on their birthday to say just happy birthday. And, and I kind of like, you know, ask them about it, you know, press them. And they're like, it's pretty clear that they still care about the person like that. That doesn't go away. What do you guys think? I would, I would agree with you to an extent. I, I think when we, when we look at first Corinthians 13, it's talking about love and charity or depending on what translation you use. I think that's like, it's kind of giving the ideal, you know, like this is what pure love is, but at the same time, we are sinful creatures and, you know, sin taints everything. Even, even our best efforts are tainted by sin. So I think you can still, you can still love even if, um, you know, even if you don't express that love or you don't live out that love as you should, or as Christ, you know, scripture also says for husbands to sacrifice for their wives as Christ did for the church or for church, you know, for women to love and submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And we don't always do that perfectly, but that's the ideal. That's what we should strive for. And so I think, I think, um, I do it. So yeah, I would agree with a lot with what you said, like, you know, continue to love, you'll continue to put effort, even if it's not perfect. Yeah. Now it does, it does say charity in the King James version. So I didn't quote the King James version on that part, but you know, if a Latter-day Saint did bring that up to me, it ends up still being a point for what I'm trying to convey in this article, because they'll say charity is the pure love of Christ. And according to their version, it says that charity endures all things and it never fails. So according to their version of scripture, Christ's love should never falter once you have it. I'm going to put on my Mormon hat. (laughs) Um, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So your love for him can't be perfect um, unless you're perfectly keeping the commandments. And if you're not, then you don't really love him, right? So are you keeping all of God's commandments perfectly, Mormon Paul? No, but I repent every day. (laughs) So so it's a license to sin, basically, is what you're saying. No, of course not, but I'm not going to be perfect. So you don't love God because you're not obeying his commandments. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to repent all the time. Well, I love God because I'm trying. And he said, if you love him, keep his commandments. He didn't so if, say you're not try. trying to, if you're not trying to keep <laughs> his commandments, you don't love him. He didn't say, if you love me, try to keep my commandments. <laughs> well, so what, am I supposed, God, what am I supposed what to saying. do? What am I supposed to do then with this proof text that says, if you love me, keep my commandments? How am I supposed to understand it, Mr. Evangelical? Tell me. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you admit to me that you don't love God, I think we can move forward with this conversation. Why would I admit that? I'm trying to keep his commandments. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I'm trying to do that. Yeah. Trying and failing. Well, what are you saying? I don't love God. Are you saying I don't love God? <laughs> it's so hard to take you seriously with that. <laughs> um, again, just uh, with the 
the marriage analogy. You know, it's like I might, or the parent-child analogy, I might tell my son, hey, if you love me, keep your room clean. You know, basically, do you want to express your love to me? Clean your room for me. It, it's not like me really expecting, like, this is the only way that you're going to show me love or the only way that you're going to earn my love. It's just like, hey, here's my love language, kid. Clean your room. Eat your dinner. Um, don't hit your, he doesn't have a sister, don't hit your stepmother. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't throw the cats up in the air. Yeah, Brianna, stop doing that. <laughs> No, I, I think with this proof text, I think with this proof text, like like any others, it, it helps to read on. John fourteen fifteen says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper." So it's not if you love me, keep my commandments, and you better do it right. He's going to give you a Helper to do it to be with you forever, right? Which goes to the point that that God is going to complete the the good work that He began in you, as Paul says in Philippians one. Um, so he's going to give another helper and to be with for you forever. Listening, it's not a it's not a help meet to be sealed to you forever. It's it's the Holy Spirit, right? Just that I'd throw that in there. Yeah. Verse seventeen says, "Even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you." And here's here's the promise, right? Uh, that that goes with your parent child analogy, Michael. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Like you were saying about the tree and those who wander off in Lehi's dream. Um, Jesus goes after the the lost sheep, right? Um, there's rejoicing at the return of the prodigal. Uh, this is the gospel. It's not, um, man, I've got to try as hard as I can. And I, I might make it to the celestial kingdom if I'm just good enough. It's that uh, Christ isn't going to let us run off. Once we're in him, we're in him. He's not going to leave us as orphans. He's going to come to us. No one can pluck us out of his hand. No one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Um, these are promises that are real because they're rooted in who God is, in God's character and his nature. Yeah, which- and you kind of brought up this image in my head too, Paul, where in the whole iron rod vision, the tree of life is completely stationary. The rod of iron is completely stationary. The only person moving is the people, you know, it's completely their will that is bringing them to the, uh, to the tree of life, um, where the real gospel would be completely different. If they wander off and they're drowning in the swamps, Christ would come and, and pull them out or go into the great and spacious building looking for them to bring them out. He's not a stationary God at all. Yeah. I was thinking about the example that Christ gives, you know, what, what shepherd who has 99 sheep and lost the one not you know leave the 99 and go find the lost one well why are they lost you know you know i think as a lot of days saying i probably would have read that and thought oh well you know like life got hard or you know they stumbled you know maybe maybe you know they couldn't pay their bills and so they're struggling you know but i think you know it could also just be lost in sin you know maybe the sheep is completely lost in their own doubts and their own sin christ is going to go back and find them he's he's not going to be like well you know he doesn't love me anymore or he's not keeping his covenant so Let's just take these ninety and nine, and we'll we'll keep we'll keep pushing along. You know, Christ he 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 fulfills all of the promises he makes to his sheep, and he'll find every single one and bring them back. And that's just a, a beautiful promise to those who are struggling. But to me, as a Latter Day Saint, I, I don't know. I, I always felt like God only helps. You know that that old saying that's not actually biblical. You know, God only helps those who help themselves. You know, I felt like well, if I'm not doing my best, you know, God's not going to help me, even if I ask for it. I don't know how often you guys felt that way, but I felt that that way all the time. So it's almost like, okay, if I do well the next few weeks, then I can ask God for help or, I, you know, then I'll feel 
more worthy of his blessings. But, but when you understand the gospel, that's just, that's just not how it is at all. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of messaging too, in, in the lessons you receive uh, as a Latter-day Saint about uh, people who in, in, in the history of the, the Latter-day Saint movement uh, fell away, right? Whether it's uh, Martin Harris or, or Oliver Cowdery or uh, the, who, who is the milk strippings David guy? Oh, the milk strippings guy. Oh. Was that, was that him? No. I thought it started with a P. Didn't his last name start with a P? Uh, hang on. It's DNC 31. I don't have my phone on me. I don't know. Thomas B. Marsh. Thomas B. Marsh. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's all these uh, kind of object lessons that are given with, with them as analogies, right? All these people fell away and, and always following that is, well, the kingdom of God marches on, <laughs> right? Forget them. Like Matthew was saying about the, you know, we're just going to take the 99 and we're going to keep on marching. You know what I mean? Put your shoulder to the wheel brethren, you know, that's, that's kind of the messaging you get. And it, it does kind of leave you with this, this understanding, Michael, as you've talked about in one of your other articles, you know, that the, and, and Brianna kind of referenced it tonight that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit's like, mm, sorry, <laughs> can't stay with you. Cause you're, you're, you sinned. I'm not, you know, what kind of helper is that? Yep. And to, to quote that article, that one's Holy Ghosted. But I basically said that you would expect this kind of behavior from a teenage girl, not from the Alpha and the Omega. Yeah. So um, I got to admit, guys, tonight uh, uh, I was not uh, not feeling at all a desire to to record. Uh, just had some busyness at work and then some pretty heavy stuff happened in my family, my extended family this week, and just wasn't really feeling it at all. And part of that's uh, what's what's coming next. But um you know, it's uh, it was really good to go through your article, Michael, and and kind of review some of the scriptures that that give believers uh, the sure promises of God that we can trust. Um, that uh, it's not about um, you know, how you're feeling at any given moment, because uh, you might feel down. Um, but the promises of God are sure uh, to those who believe and and trust in Christ and are in Christ. And I'm really glad that uh, that we got together tonight to record because. Uh, I feel a lot better now. So yeah, I've I enjoyed talking to you guys too. Um, and I think this article, you know, it's I, it's it's the second article in a a group of three um, that I wrote. That it was really interesting writing all three of these articles because a lot of them I didn't know what I was going to write when I went into it, and there were there were sentences that came out of my fingertips, and I would stop and say, I didn't know that, or I've never thought of it this way before. And it wasn't until after it was done where I was like, okay, you know, so it, so it wasn't me um, is what I'm saying. It's like, I, I really felt like I was inspired that the spirit was with me as I was writing these, uh, these articles. So I had an LDS acquaintance read through this article and he really liked it, said that, uh, you know, his exact words were the evangelical position is amazing, um, that God just forgives you instantly the moment that you sin. And, uh, and he did pose a question to me and he said, what about uh, these pastors who serve for 20 years and then they go full-blown atheist? Were they never saved? And so he actually requested me to write an article on that subject. So the third article 
um, in the series was directed to his question. Uh, I'm just going to tell you what that is called. You can find it on my website uh, from watertowine.org. It is called Eternal Security and the Dichotomy of Peter and Judas. Um, basically, I took his question and I thought, man, maybe I can go a step further than a pastor and let's look at these apostles, uh, you know, Peter and Judas and what is it that caused them to behave so differently um, at the end? They have so many similarities. They both knew Christ. They both denied him. Um, they both uh, died on a tree. You know, there's a lot of similarities, but there's some big differences too. So I, I kind of use that to uh, address this question. So if anyone is interested in that, that's where you can find part three to the series. All right, good. Matthew, any final thoughts on this article? No, just um, maybe some of our comments might be a little bit uh, sharp to those Latter-day Saints that were listening. Um, but we're not criticizing you. We're, we're, we're trying to show the inadequacies of the gospel that, that we were taught as children, as Latter-day Saints. And so we just want you to come to Jesus in the way that he wants you to come to him. So we hope you, you'll read this article and you'll pray about it. And um, just really consider consider what God would have you do or, or, or how, how to come to Jesus. Just, you know, be willing to read it and look at it in a different light, I guess. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, Flyerflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Word made flesh, the risen Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever.
that we as your church would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell 